Most people agree that we need to lower our carbon footprint while providing reliable and affordable energy. A diverse energy mix will provide reliability and affordability, which is extremely important during Minnesota's four distinct seasons. Fortunately, a clean energy solution for tomorrow is available today. That's ready to work alongside with other energy sources, and it's propane. Propane produces 43% fewer emissions than electricity generated from the U.S. grid. Propane is energy stored on site and independent from the vulnerabilities of the grid. And propane's benefits don't end there. Major advances are being made today for renewable propane that is compatible with the traditional propane and requires no additional infrastructure investments. Minnesota needs to use all our low-carbon alternatives, including propane, to safely provide energy, reliability, resiliency, and affordability. Propane, the right energy right now. To find out more about what propane can do for you, visit propane.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Minnesota Bound podcast, the stories behind the stories. I'm Laura Shera, your host for today, and I am joined by Peter Guy, who is a long-term member and now coach of the Minneapolis Ski Jumping Club. And Peter, welcome to the Minnesota Bound podcast. Hi, Laura. Thank you for joining us. I um, am so excited to have you on today um, for numerous reasons. Um, but before we really get diving into ski jumping in Minnesota and the history of it, et cetera, I um, just want to bring people down a, a visual lane here. If if you've driven down 494, um, either going east or west towards um down by in Bloomington, you will have seen, I'm sure, this large uh, ski jump that kind of sits at the top of a hill. And before I met Peter, I always thought the ski jump was old. It wasn't in use anymore. I have heard from other people that it was shut down and all of these things. And lo and behold, that ski jump has been around for um, almost a hundred years, and or the ski jumping club has, and the ski jump is still in use, and that's why I wanted to chat with Peter today because we filmed a Minnesota Bound uh, episode a few weeks ago, and ski jumping in Minnesota is alive and well and still very popular. So, um, how long has the club been around now, Peter? Yeah, next year will be the 100th anniversary of the club, which is kind of hard to believe. Uh, and for the better part of half of that, my family has been involved. So so it runs deep, uh, both in the community and in my family. And do you know, yes, and this is one thing that we'll get into. And one thing that I loved about meeting people within the club is the longstanding generational um, aspect to ski jumping. And do you have any... Um, idea on the history of why they built the ski jump in Minnesota in the first that, place? That's, I mean, the, the history of ski jumping in Minnesota goes back to some of the earliest Norwegian immigrants that came here. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the first uh, ski jump that was ever built in the United States was built in Red Wing, Minnesota in the, whatever it was, the 1880s or something like really? that. Yeah. And so it, 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 it immigrated with the, with the Norwegians, especially, but other, a lot of other, um, European immigrants, uh, in European countries now have strong ski jumping roots and strong ski jumping communities. Uh, but for, for, for Minnesota and the upper Midwest, it was largely the Norwegian ski jumpers. And so, you know, Red Wing, uh, they built a jump in Red Wing. They built 
uh, jumps in St. Paul. They built jumps up in Duluth. And they built them in Minneapolis. And 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 way back when, there were jumps uh, like at Theater Worth Park in Minneapolis. Uh, it was called the Glenwood Jump, and then it was called the Theater Worth Jump. That's actually where I learned to ski back in the 70s was at Theater Worth Park. Uh, those, those those jumps are, of course, long gone and, um, and mostly forgotten, except by, for by a few of us. But now the Minneapolis Ski Club is, uh, is standing proud and tall in Bloomington. And um, you guys also, you offer, you know, people are like, oh, that's for Olympians or, you know, professional jumpers only. But that's that's not the case. You actually offer classes to learn how to ski jump. Yeah, we do. And we have for, you know, as long as we've been around, one of the objects, of course, is to get people interested in this sport. And in order to do that, you don't sling them off the top of that huge jump that you see <laughs> as you're driving down 494. You know this well by now. Um, but you start on a little bump. Uh, there are three other jumps at the Minneapolis Ski Club besides the one that you see from the highway. And we have, you know, a whole slew of kids who come out three times a week, four times a week. and practice on those little jumps. And the object, of course, is that you start small and you work your way up as it is with any sport, right? You uh, you take your first jump and you're lucky to go six feet in the air. And by the time you're in the Olympics, you're going 400 or 450 feet in the air. That's so incredible. So when we filmed uh, the Minnesota Bound episode, which will air next winter, uh, we, of course, had the opportunity to um, watch some incredible ski jumpers that we're going 450 feet in the air and, um, you know, age ranges from, um, Anna, she's, I believe she in high school or college, maybe she just graduated high school last year. So this is okay. her first year, you know, m- more or less ski jumping exclusively traveling the, the country and ski jumping exclusively. It's incredible. And then we also had Patrick who is 55 years old and, um, incredibly athletic and still continuing to jump on the large ski jump. So it's, you know, I don't know, is there, you know, kind of a, an age limit to ski (laughs) jumping, I guess. I mean, I think Patrick's kind of showing that there is really no age limit. (laughs) I was going to say, if there is one, Patrick keeps defying (laughs) it. Uh, He's, he's a tremendous guy, just a, a, a really terrific inspiration for a lot of the kids and a ton of fun to have around. And he, he, uh, he throws his, uh, laugh and support and encouragement around as much as he does his skis. So we're really grateful about that. Uh, but the answer to that question is really no. I mean, I think about when I grew up, when I was growing up in the sport, there was a whole, I mean, a whole class of guys, my dad's age who at the time, I don't even know, he must've been in his forties or something, who came out to the jump with their kids and and jumped, you know, just recreationally and 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 for fun and and for the camaraderie. Uh, that's certainly less and less the case now. There are fewer people like Patrick, though there are a few others in the in in the in the upper Midwest and in 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 the in this part of the world that do jump like that. But it's mostly a young person's sport, and by young per- people, I mean uh, in our club we have kids that start. You know, we have five-year-old kids in the club going up the little eight-meter jump, uh, and 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 they work their way up. And it and it really is a question of confidence. It's a question of aptitude. It's a question of daring, and how much the parents 
tr- trust the coaches to make the decisions about when those progressions take place. But we're very careful about it, right? We don't let kids who aren't ready to make the next step take the next step. And in the meantime, the object is just to have a ton of fun and to encourage people to really, I don't know, sort of get addicted to this sport. Once you get off the bigger jumps, it's hard to quit doing it. I, I know that from my own experience. Yeah. And I, um, you know, with the, you, when I was there and of course you were kind enough to give me a mini lesson on ski jumping and I am a recreational downhill skier. So I had at least that amount of experience, but even going off, um, as an adult, I think kids are probably less fearful, but even this little, is it, was it a six inch or 12 inches off the ground, the jump? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it it depends a little bit on how much is snowed at any given time, but yeah, less than a foot. Yes. And even that is a little intimidating when you first, you know, get up there and the skis, you know, the bindings are different on the ski and the skis are long and wide. And, um, and what I think that many may not know is on the ski jump itself, it's, you think it's snow, but in actuality, it's, it's ice, correct? Yeah. It's an ice track. That's right. I think, you know, I think that one of the reasons that even on a little tiny jump like that, and if anyone has done any kind of downhill skiing at all, they, what, what we're describing with the eight meter jump is something like the absolute bunny hill of an, of a, of an Alpine ski area, even a twin cities Alpine ski area, right? This, this in run is something like 40 or 50 feet long. The landing hill is not much longer. You're never more than a foot or a foot and a half off the ground if you really leap hard and you're not in the air for more than a half a second, you know, between 10 and 30 feet. So it's not like, you know, it's sort of the antithesis of what most people think about when they think about ski jumping, which is people soaring off Olympic sized jumps. And I, but I think that one of the reasons that people, even, you know, capable, athletic, rational people like you, and I presume you're all those things. You certainly seem to be. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but they carry with them to the top of that little jump images of either the Olympic ski jumping that they happened upon once or twice in their life and the memory right over their right-hand shoulder of the giant jump that stands above them. And there is a lot of steps that have to be taken, many, many steps that have to be taken between that little jump and the big jump, uh, exactly. but, but it, but it's like, it's there, it's in your head as soon as you put on jumping skis and have spent a few minutes out there because that jump is looming above you. And so I think that's one of the reasons that people have a little, uh, you know, a little trepidation about it. But to your second point about the, 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 the tracks, yeah, the tracks are ice. This is a, uh, I don't know how recent, uh, development in the sport it is, but, um, probably say in the last 20 years or so, uh, it has become the norm that rather than just skiing down snow, which is how it was when I was a kid, uh, we cut very deep tra- tracks on the in-run. The in-run is the sort of the ramp part of the jump. And not only do we cut those tracks so that skis can stay in them, but we ice them so that they last, so that they weather these uh, rainstorms that we've had and and the many hundreds or even thousands of jumps that get skied on them each year. And how many gallons of, you know, you're saying that when you build, you're building the big Olympic jump and it's not like all of a sudden snow's there and the tracks are in. I mean, there's a lot of steps that go to making sure it's, you know, jumpable and you're kind of 
sharing with me the amount of snow and then the amount of water you have to pour on it. Can you explain that to the audience? It's pretty fascinating and how you yeah. build that. It's an it's just an enormous amount of work. That's the first thing that that ought to be said. And as with everything that happens out there, and I mean everything from the snowing in of the jumps to the parents who stand behind the concession stand and sell hot dogs and uh, hot chocolate to the kids to the outfitting of equipment, everything is done by volunteers. So this is very much a uh, you know a volunteer run organization uh, and operation. And so it is a handful of people, you know, at any given, on any given night, there are, you know, between four and 10 of us out there working on these big projects at the beginning of the year. And it is a shovel worth of snow at a time covering all of the inruns, including the giant one. We have a winch and pulley that, that brings um, big buckets full of snow up one at a time. But there is something I wish I could remember. I think that we put 10 big dump truck loads of snow on the big hill in run, which is, uh, you know, I mean, that is, that takes a whole day with a crew of 10, 10 people. Uh, it's a lot of shoveling. It's a lot of backbreaking work. It's a lot of, uh, getting soaking wet and freezing cold. And when that's all done, we make sure it's all smooth. And we have this mechanism, this motorized mechanism that cuts a track in that packed snow. And then we take about 500 gallons of water and coat that track so that it is again it just becomes it is like it is rock hard ice there's no uh getting 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 around it it's just ice it's it might as well be a luge track or a bobsled track for how hard it is and all of that is accounted for like in the uh in the physics and in the design of the jump we know how fast a skier is going to go at the bottom of a ramp that is at this you know, this in run is, uh, I forget if it's 36 or 37 degrees of steepness. And we know that by the time they get to that takeoff, they're going to be going a certain speed, which is appropriate for that hill. And all of that was taken into account when the jump was built and when the jump was designed before that. And let's share with people how fast these jumpers are actually going when they launch themselves off the end of that thing. Cause you standing there, you can hear, I mean, how fast they're going. It sounds like it's like a rocket flying right past you. Yeah, it really is. It's pretty awesome. And I forget because I spent most of my time down with the little kids on the little hills. But it's just such an impressive thing. And it is to all of the senses, right? Like if you're standing uh, next to the track on the big hill in run and someone goes by, not only do you hear them, but you feel it in the vibration of your feet. And the the whoosh of the air as they go by is like a, you know, like a car going by practically. And they're going um, somewhere between, you know, 52 and 53, maybe 54 miles an hour when they hit the takeoff. And that takeoff on the big jump, if it's uh, 12 inches on the little hill, it's 12 feet on the big hill. And so as soon as they go off the takeoff, they're 12 feet in the air going 52, 53, 54 miles per hour. Uh, and it's a it's a sensory experience for sure, uh, even for the even for a bystander. And I, you know, we were chatting during our time together and we were kind of talking about what types of personalities that really love ski jumping. And I found it fascinating that you we're saying, you know, it's either someone that is kind of an adrenaline person, no fear, 
um, they just have that side to them that they love to explore. And then on the complete opposite side of that is someone who's very cerebral and almost very introverted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that it- like was so surprising to me. I mean, and that was true of even the three um, jumpers that we met, two of them were very cerebral. And right. it was um, fascinating to watch someone that is so calm and collected with their thoughts and even the way they move up the stairs um, carrying their skis, which if you don't know and you're a ski jumper, you have to climb all those stairs with your skis on your shoulder um, and not really get out of breath before you decide to go jump, which is also incredible ski jumping. Right. Yeah. The the personality traits I thought were fascinating. I I agree. And I mean, I've spent my whole life – uh, you know, around and among, and of course, even being a ski jumper, and it has always been this way. Uh, the it, it, and and the, and I don't think necessarily. I mean, maybe if I did some deep analysis, I could make some discoveries about it. But it's sort of six of one and half a dozen of the other in terms of the people who really excel at the sport. I mean, no matter whether you're an adrenaline junkie or a super cerebral person who's really calm and of course loves what they're doing but isn't there for the thrill of it it's almost more like a puzzle to be solved or something like that in Mm -hmm. either case you need to have if you're going to be a good ski jumper you need to have an enormous capacity to concentrate and to focus and to apply what are often sort of microscopic adjustments to your technique and so that's true in either case but you know it's just like with most things in life some people want to uh, scream and dance, and some people want to sit on the edge of the dance floor and watch. And, and either either sort of person, there are very few in between people in the sport of ski jump. As I said, there's just there just aren't, and it's a it's a peculiar thing, but also something that I guess we're used to by now. Um, and, yeah. and I think too that the kid who comes to the sport and is really you know, uh, I hate to keep using the word, but cerebral or even kind of cautious or trepidatious about what they're getting themselves into um, develops at the very least a taste for the thrill of it. And they may not, you know, walk around the club whooping and hollering about it. But believe me, when they go to bed at night, they're thinking about the sensation. They're thinking about the thrill. They're concentrating on how they can do better and go farther and, and become a better ski jumper. I mean, there's no doubt that when, you know, for even my small experience of going off the six inch jump, which, um, again, after I went down the first time, you do realize that, um, a lot of the fear of course is in your mind from, as you had mentioned, seeing how fast those other ski jumpers are going and you kind of feel like you're going that fast, even though you're going down the bunny hill (laughs) (laughs) for for context on the bunny hill, like you could, if you were uh, nimble of foot, you could run down the hill as fast as the kid is skiing so down the true. hill next to it. Yeah. It's so true. And I wish, um, you know, I I had posted that I went down the jump and so my friends were like, did you get that on video? And I was like, I didn't because we needed all hands on deck. First of all, you're at the top giving me the coaching of, and kind of at some point just giving me a little push down. And then um, another young lady reminded me of her first name. She was at Sarah. the bottom of the hill. Sarah, thank you. Yeah. She was lovely. Sarah is at the bottom because she's down there to um, way at the end to somewhat 
kind of slow you down because what I did find compared to a downhill ski, there's not quite as much of an edge. So when you snow plow, it's, you're slowing down, but you're not, you know, it, maybe I don't know how to use an edge on a jump ski either, but well, she no, didn't catch me. Yeah, there's, there is no edge on a jump ski. That's one of the things okay. that people have a hard time adjusting to. You know, if you've, if you've not skied a bunch in your life, then there's no adjusting adjustment necessary. But if you're uh, even a recreational alpine skier, you're used to, you know, what in many cases, I think maybe even in all cases, is a metal edge. Yes. Right? That thing comes into the, into the snow, like, with, with purpose. And not only is there no metal on the edge of a jumping ski, they're actually rounded. They're designed to do one thing, and that is go straight down that ice track and then into the air and then straight down that landing hill it's, until it's time to stop. So, yeah, so I will, yeah, that is true. Okay. So no edge on the ski. <laughs> so Sarah's down there to, you know, to catch me or whatever. So I didn't have really anybody with hands to do this, um, to film it, but I would have loved to have just watched it myself. I don't know if I would have posted that on social media, maybe, <laughs> um, because it does feel like your first couple times that you are going much further, but probably watching it would have been just a great hoot because you realize you're like, Oh, that really isn't, um, that far at all. However, it does it is so much fun and it does leave you wanting to do more and progress. And you had even mentioned that you also offer, I mean, this is just not a sport for um, just kids to get into that. You actually do have lessons or private sessions. If, if you have some ski experience or maybe not um, to hire you guys to do like an evening of learning how to ski jump. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and there are, I mean, listen, it's way more, um, popular among the kids. Not many uh, adults are uh, at a place in life where they're like, I think it's a great idea for me to start ski jumping now that I'm 50 years old. That just doesn't happen very often, but it does happen occasionally. And I'm trying to think, I get, you know, on any given, in any given season, there's probably, you know, something like, I don't know, 10 grownups who come out and try it. And, you know, some of these grownups are retirement age and beyond. You know, like this is a bucket list item for a lot of those people, but it I is, that. I mean, it, one of the things that's so fabulous about the, about the club and about the sport, in fact, generally is that you can do it. Like if you have any, uh, agility, any athleticism at all, if you're even remotely fit, like you can give this a try, you're probably not going to be great at it. You're probably not going to ascend to the level of world champion. I, I'm thinking of the world championships because, uh, they're going on right now, but you know, but you can have a good time, and that's one of the things too. And 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 I recall when we were out there with you, uh, you know, sort of trying to sell you on the idea that we'd like to have a good time out there as well. Oh, you know, I mean, there's a lot sure. of laughing, a lot of music. We we all get along swimmingly. It's just a fabulous place to be, and adults that get a little taste of that often want to stick around for a while, and often often do. Well, I have to tell you that you had offered to have my girlfriends and I come back out for a ski jumping night. And I've already messaged um, those of my friends that know how to ski. And all of them are like, I'm 100% in. So we're going to get that on the books for a Wednesday or Thursday night and have a little girls night ski jumping um, session with you guys. Uh, yeah, you, you better do that before all of the snow melts, which seems these days. Does it? I keep looking at the forecast. I'm seeing high of 25. So I'm like, oh, I got one more week. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there is time. And and we like, I mean, one of the things that's true is that the winter season, at least, I don't know, it feels like it's getting shorter and shorter. Uh, And maybe that has something to do 
with uh, with the climate and and how our weather weather patterns are changing. Um, I'm not sure, but you know what was once a three or four month season, especially for Midwestern jumpers, is now a two or three month season, uh, which makes it harder in the winter. Yeah, and you guys actually still jump in the summer on your small jumps for lessons. Yeah. Which, which baffles people's minds because they just can't fathom how we do it. It has nothing to do with snow. Uh, all of those jumps, uh, the three little jumps. So we have three, what I think of as the junior jumps. Uh, they are like an 8 meter, an 18 meter, and a 28 meter versus our large hill, which is like a 70 meter. So that gives you some, just numerically, some context. But all three of the smaller hills are jumpable in the summer. And what that means is that on the in-run, so the, the ramp part of the jump, there is a metal track uh, underneath all of the snow. And that track, we keep wet. Uh, you know, it has a sprinkler system right on the side of it. And we keep that wet. And it works just exactly like a winter track, except that it makes a little bit different and probably more noise than an ice track. And then the landing hills are covered in a plastic matting. And it's really hard to describe this. The, the way that I usually try to do it is imagine you're holding a bunch of linguine in your hand, a bunch of uncooked linguine, except that it's about an inch thick and about the size of a roof shingle. And it's laid down like roof shingles, like one on oh, top of the next. Sure. And so we keep that wet too. And it, the sport is just exactly the same. All the technique is the same. The equipment is the same. Uh, all, all the other variables are the same. The only thing that's different is that we're swatting mosquitoes and sweating like crazy, as opposed to, uh, you know, getting frostbite on our toes. That is fascinating. So that obviously is very helpful in keeping kids or those who are learning how to jump really progressing throughout the whole year. Cause I would think if you only have two or three months to be learning, yeah. that would be really challenging. It is. It is. And in fact, one of the, you know, it's like, I guess what, it's sort of a, an unwritten credo or something that we have, which is we want the kids, I mean, the little kids, of course, we want them improving all of the time. But the really competitive kids and the people who travel nationally and even internationally to compete, they do the bulk of their training and improving, ideally anyway, in the summertime, because once winter comes, it's competition time. And if a skier is good enough to be traveling internationally for competitions or even nationally for competitions, they can't just go and take as many jumps as they want. There's a, a pretty strict schedule that these competitions keep. And you're lucky to get 10 jumps over the weekend. Well, in the summertime, if you're at the right place, that is a place with a lift, that is a place that um, you know has, has good, uh, reliable weather, you can take 20 jumps a day for several days in a row. And all of a sudden you've got a hundred jumps in a week and you might not get that in a whole month of winter competition skiing. Shout out to our good friends at Connecticut. You already know how much the Shirk family loves Connecticut water. We have it in our home and this past summer we added it to our cabin and Oh, what a difference it has made. Really, for as long as I can remember, we have always dealt with cabin water, the stinky, foul well water. 
But after a really painless four-hour installation, we now have Kinetico's soft water and Kinetico's K5 drinking system. No more bottled water to try and make coffee in the morning before fishing. We have great water right out of our K5 tap. Also, our laundry no longer smells funky, and the Connecticut water cleaned up our showers and dishes. The world's most efficient, worry-free water system. Visit Connecticut.com to find a dealer near you and join the Connecticut family. Hi there, Ron Shera here for Star Bank. If you're putting your money into mega banks down the street, who knows where that money's being used? Bank locally. Keep your money local with a community bank that actually cares about you, your family, your business, and your goals. Check out the bank we use at Minnesota Bound. Try Minnesota's own Star Bank. You can find them online at starbank.net. When you call Star Bank, you actually hear a real living person answering the phone. StarBank has 10 convenient locations around Minnesota to serve you and all the mobile banking products that you need to manage your money. Check out all that StarBank has to offer at StarBank.net. Remember FDIC, an equal housing lender. And I'd like to thank our friends at the Minnesota Historical Society. You know, the History Forum is back right now at the Minnesota History Center. Since 2004, the History Forum has explored American history with some of the nation's very best scholars. That tradition now continues in 2023 with five events highlighting the diversity and excellence of today's historical scholarship. In-person and virtual tickets are available at mnhs.org slash historyforum. We would also like to thank our good friends at Star Bank. You were also chatting about the amount of jumps someone will take from start from starting to learn to before they ever even touch that Olympic size jump. And it's a pretty incredible number. Yeah. I mean, it really and, and listen, there's variation here, of course. It depends on the sure. skier's ability and their age and and their courage, too, of course. But you know, we're talking about um a, a, a minimum of a thousand or 2000 jumps between that first little leap and the one that gets you off of the Olympic size jump. Um, and that means, you know, several, uh, hundred jumps on the couple of smallest jumps. Um, I have a son right now, his name is Cormac and he, he jumps and he's sort of just about on the verge of getting off of the big jump. In fact, if the weather had been kinder this year, he probably would have done it, but he's had, I don't even know. I would guess uh, four or 500 jumps on our 30 meter jump on our 28 meter jump, as well as jumps and yeah. at, at other jumps around the, the Midwest, you know, that are like the next step up. So it's, I mean, it takes some commitment as, as anything does. Uh, but it's all, and, and, and it, and it's true that that sounds like some, you know, just an enormous number of jumps and it is, but that's, you know, that's like a, a few years for for a kid my son's age. He started jumping when he was 12. He's 15 now. He's a, a definitely a late starter. Uh, he was a downhill skier before that and really loved that. But once he got the bug for jumping, he just couldn't stop doing it. And so, you know, he's within a, within three or four years, he's going from the littlest bump out there to an Olympic size jump. That's incredible. And what is like the psychology that happens in someone's mind and I'm sure it's different for each person, but going from the you say it's the 30 meter is the yeah. biggest of the learning jumps to the actual 
big jump. I mean, there has to be something that's going through each person's mind of like, okay, this is it. I'm now moving up here. I have to climb a lot of stairs. <laughs> so some like you get in your head a little bit, I would think. Yeah. Um, the first time you go down that big jump has got to be something else. I can't imagine the adrenaline rush on that. Yeah, it, it is. And I, you know, I did this when I was a kid myself. I'm a pretty, I'm, I'm in my fifties now. So it's been a long time since I've done this, but you I can really, uh, well, I can remember my first jumps on the big jumps. Yeah. Like on the Olympic size jumps for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm now I'm watching my son who's making these, taking these steps on the, you know, the path of progression. And every time he moves up a jump, I get sort of squirrely and nervous about it. You know, I mean, these jumps are, um, even for someone who's been around him, them his whole life, they, 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 they freak me out a little bit, you know, they're big, they're tall, you're going fast, you're going far. And I get a little bit apprehensive or nervous. I get butterflies. He's one of the cerebral jumpers. He's like, all he is is excited to do it. And I'm sure that if he were being totally honest, he would be like, yeah, I'm a, you know, maybe a little bit nervous, but two things are true. One is it's not, I mean, to, to the, to the observer, it's bonkers, right? Who would ever do this to the kid who's doing it a hundred times a week, a thousand times over the course of a season, this is pretty rote, you know, this is like what, what they're doing. And the other thing is, is they are, uh, because, and I should think about how to say this, we're very cautious. Safety is our first priority, really. Uh, above anything. And so we're careful and we're deliberate about as coaches and as a club about when we let kids take the next step in the progression. And like my son, I think he's fallen a couple of times only and over all of these many, many jumps. So he's not, I mean, he's not going into it thinking that he's going to crash and burn. He's going into it thinking they've not steered me wrong so far. Every time they've told me I was ready, I was, in fact, ready. And things did, in fact, go fine. So there's a precedent for him being ready to go. And and though, yes, they're big jumps and, and that you know, as we stand on the side of it and we hear that noise and we feel that vibration, it freaks us out a little bit. It's less so for the skiers. It really is. So cool. One thing you had mentioned, which I is one of the most unique and honorable aspects of your of your ski club is that it is all voluntary as far as the coaching goes, how you take care of the grounds. I understand um, Coach Chris, who is also with us on the Minnesota Bound filming day, who is um, a great guy. His whole family is generationally has all been um, part of the ski jumping club. And he... I believe you said he even drove how far to buy snowmaking machines because it was, you had a year that just didn't have snow in Minnesota and he took it upon himself. This is how passionate he is. And all of you are about the club, which is so cool is how far did he drive to buy these machines? I think it was to North Carolina. Yes. And then hauled them all the way back to Minnesota because that's how passionate all of you are about making sure you had a season. Yeah. That's incredible. it, it, it is incredible. And every time I, I mean, while it's happening, I, of course, take it for granted, right? Like, this is just something that we all do. Uh, in fact, today, we're going back out there early this afternoon. We have jumping club jumping on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night, as well as Saturday morning. So tonight is a jumping night. Uh, and we have to go out early because we had the rain and the snow. 
And, you know, it, it like eats into real life, regular life. And I have to miss some time from work and and miss some time with the family to make sure that these jumps are up and going. And we take that for granted, right? I mean, maybe maybe not for granted, but it's part of the expectation that we all have for each other. Um, and so it's not much to think about in the moment, but when we get to the end of the season and we're standing at the bottom of the hill, looking up at it, knowing the season is over, the sigh of relief from the responsibility, from the labor, from the commitment of time, which is just enormous, uh, it really is something. And it, and it is, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, but the, the members of the club who donate the time. We had that huge snowstorm a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. and we just sent an email to the club and said, you know, we're really eager to get jumping. The snow is going to be great, but we have to shovel out whatever that is, you know, a 10-acre facility to get the jumps ready to go again. And the club just shows up and, and does it. We shovel the stairs, and we clear the in-runs, and we groom the landing hills, and all of that's true. And so people like Chris Bros, who you mentioned, Coach Chris, and my brother Tony uh, and his wife, Deidre, they, I mean, these are people who have been, um, you know, keeping the club literally afloat through their labor, through their time, through their donation of, of, of that time and of money um, in every conceivable way. Like it's just, it, it doesn't happen without those people. My brother, uh, Tony, started jumping when he was five years old. Uh, he hasn't missed a winter at the ski jumps in his life since. So we're talking about, you know, 40 plus years of complete and total devotion to the Minneapolis ski club for this guy. Um, which is, I mean, who, who does that? Who, who does that? And his kids ski, um, as well. So, so he has some personal investment, but it's not, you know, I mean, he could, he could get away with doing a lot less except that. He loves the sport. He loves the community and the camaraderie of the club. And he can't <laughs> he can't tear himself away from it. Now, he might disagree and say at any minute that he's thinking about tearing himself away from it, but I haven't seen him do it yet. <laughs> well, that's what I, I thought was, you know, not only being a unique club that's been around since 1926, you don't find many of those anymore, but the the people that I met at your club and the passion they have for ski jumping, for passing on the skill and the fun and the joy to younger generations is so unique and special because there's, I mean, there are clubs that have been for around for a long time. And, um, but I just think it's really unique because you're not necessarily, you're, you're not getting, I don't believe like state funded or anything like that. So this is all just a, a passion project and a, something that you're all very um, fond of and have been doing it generationally that you pass it on to younger generations. And that's, you know, when we say introduce a kid to the great outdoors on Minnesota bound, I mean, these are the things we're talking about. It's not just hunting or fishing or canoeing or hiking. It's everything related to the outdoors. And that's what you guys are doing. And I just think it's so cool. Yeah, I agree. And I'm so glad to hear you describe it that way. I mean, because it is just that simple, you know, I mean, I've described the commitment of a couple of the people and it's it's otherworldly if you step back and look at it objectively but it also as i said it just feels really i mean it's a part of our dna and i think one of the things that you know new people who come out and try it or people who end up as club members after they do come out and try it it's just one of the things that they're attracted to about the club 
and I, I've used the word camaraderie a couple of times now, and it really is that. Like, it's a sort of spontaneous friendship that forms with everyone who joins the club. And and whether that's because of that love of the outdoors or that love of winter or that, you know, that the, the thrill of watching your kid try something new and try something exciting, I don't know. But it just happens, and it happens almost every time with almost every group of uh, almost every family that comes out and gives it a gives it a whirl. And we love that part of it. So true. And one unique aspect too that I, I can't miss because it seems to be a really big part of it of ski jumping, which I found to be really fascinating, is not only you know you have skiers going down the jump and jumping, but one of the important parts of jumping is actually the wind. And the day we were out there, I think we had wind gusts up to 20 miles an hour, which was borderline um, not being able to jump, but we were, I think, right at the right spot. However, Coach Chris or any of that, there is a coach that is standing at a platform before a skier jumps off the jump that is monitoring the wind. And Coach Chris was on the platform that day and it was... I mean, with 20 mile an hour wind gusts, it was cold and the windshield was cold. Coach Chris is standing on the platform with no mittens or gloves on. And this is by choice because he likes to feel the wind with his hands and he can feel and has an idea of timing on these wind gusts and when they're going to happen or when it's going to slow down just in time to send the jumper. So the jumper doesn't go until the coach says the wind is right. So that combination together, I thought it was just in, like so fascinating to me that he could feel the wind with his hands and he knew exactly the timing of it. Yeah, it's almost mystical to, to watch is. a good a good coach do that. And and you know, we were we were observing that and we were talking about it and he was describing it. And I got to thinking about that after the day because it was really windy. That was I mean, if it had been any other day, we probably wouldn't have jumped, uh, you know, realistically, certainly not the last half of that session. But um, I was thinking about how many hours Chris has spent on that platform, on the side of the jump, coaching kids over the last whatever it is. Chris has been uh, retired from jumping, I think, for about 20 years or so. Uh, And for all 20 of those years, he's been standing on that coach's stand every Tuesday night, every Wednesday night, every Thursday night for two or three hours at a time often by himself coaching his group of jumpers. And what does he have to do between jumps except look around and gauge the wind and study the wind? And that's why he has a sense of where it's coming from, where it's going to go, when it's going to gust, when it's going to lull, all of those things. And because ski jumpers, I mean, our number one nemesis on a big hill is wind. And it's kind of our only nemesis unless we're in our own heads. Um, you know, he's paying attention to that. And he's in, in, and he's in, he's an expert at it. Nobody in the world can do what he does standing on that platform because of how long he's done it. It was incredible to watch. And, yeah. you know, and then you were, we were also chatting, chatting that there is like an ideal wind direction and amount that to give you the loft that you need. What, what is that ideal wind look like for a ski jumper? It's actually contrary to what what people probably presume, which is you think you want the wind at your back, you know, to help you go faster, that sort of thing. But actually, the ideal wind is a headwind, a wind coming straight up the landing hill. Um, And that the reason for that is it creates a lifting effect. And it's a little bit like a kite. 
right? If you throw a kite up into the wind and get it up there and, and floating on the wind, it's like this effortless thing. And for a good ski jumper, a ski jumper who's executed their takeoff properly and who's gotten into a good flight position and is a good flyer, uh, the, the effect is the same thing. There's just a lifting effect from that. In fact, it's so significant, the wind is, that in uh, you know, like international competitions, in World Cups and Continental Cup competitions, they have anemeters set up all over the landing hill. They gauge the wind and they actually award or subtract points for each jump based on the conditions of the wind. So it's it's really? that significant that it's and, and that much taken into account that a skier, I mean, I, I was tracking the women's world championships were this morning and I was just checking the checking the 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 ticker as it was going on. And there were jumpers who were awarded 30 extra points. We're talking about a, a, a sport the way the winner is going to have about 250 points. 30 extra points because the wind conditions were so unfavorable to them while they were jumping, which is, uh, this is also probably, uh, you know, about as old as the ice tracks are, this this um, quality of taking the wind into consideration. But it's just that significant. Yeah. That is fascinating. So did ski jumping from its just its general history, is, does it date back to the late 1800s? Oh, even before that, in in, really? in Scandinavia, in Norway, yeah. There, I, I mean, there are. Back then. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm so sorry, I missed it. Why? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's um, you know, it's just a part of the the culture there. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever if you've ever been to Norway, but it's sort of like you know, if you drive through uh, Minnesota, let's say you're heading out Highway 12, and you stop in all the little towns, you know, between here and South Dakota, what are you going to find in every town? you're going to find a football field or a baseball field or a basketball court, right? Like that's just there in every town. And in Norway, especially, but in other European countries as well, that's what you have. There are ski jumps in every town. There are, it is uh, the Nordic sports in the Scandinavian countries are, are their football and baseball and basketball. And so so that's the, you know, the birthplace of it. But there are other other nations, especially European nations, that have a really strong and rich tradition in these sports. And they're predictable. You know, Austria has a great skiing tradition and Germany has a great skiing tradition and 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 the and the sort of the the mountainous countries of Europe that you would expect. It's so cool. I um what another really unique thing about um I think the ski club in, in particular, but also I find fascinating about Minnesota is the amount of skiing Olympians that we've had come out of our state. And in fact, this club has had 10 Olympic ski jumpers. Yeah. Come over the years. One a decade, I guess, uh, on average. Um, it's been a little while and we're working really hard to try to change that. But it takes, I mean, here's the thing. You've described the club and the dedication that it takes and the volunteers doing it. Remember that these kids who are involved in it and have have sort of made it their young passion, they're often in a pretty small group, right? There's it's not like they can go to the park and get in a pickup baseball game or pickup basketball game and have, you know, 20 people to play with. Um in the small towns where ski jumping still happens in the Midwest, we're talking about clubs that have, you know, 10 or 15 or at the most 
50 or 100 jumpers. These are This is a small community. And they're not, as a nation, the United States is not a great ski jumping nation. We, you know, we, we have not historically dominated like we do in so many other Olympic sports. In fact, as a ski jumping nation, we've won one Olympic medal in the history of the Winter Olympics. And that was in the very first Winter Olympics. And that was after a calculation error was discovered some years after the actual Really? Event. I was, I was going to ask you that. Have we ever won a medal in ski jumping yeah. in the U.S.? Yeah, no. Uh, the answer is one. Yes, one bronze wow. medal from whatever it was, the 1920-something Olympics and wherever it was, Chamonix, France, or something like that. Um, but these kids, right? Like there's a couple of kids that fit this description in our club right now. These kids who train like crazy all year long with an eye on that goal. And it's a rare breed, uh, you know, that, that sticks with it that long, that is that committed to it, that loves the sport that much. But that is uh, ideal for us. That is what we love. That is in our uh, unwritten mission statement. I mean, we want to help create and coach and encourage excellent ski jumpers. And the final measure of excellence in this sport is the Olympic Games. And so that's what we're working toward. So what do you think the future holds for Minneapolis Ski Jumping Club? Like how could, you know, the community help? As you said, it's all volunteer and, um, you know, how can people get involved? Can they help you in any way? I mean, that's a terrific... Yeah, that's a really great question. I appreciate you asking it. I think that the first thing is um, that, that the community just supports us and comes out to our annual competition and cheers for the skiers who come to compete. If you've got a kid who looks up at that ski jump and says, whoa, what is that? That looks cool. Find out if they want to give it a try. I can't tell you, Laura, how many people show up on a Saturday morning for one of our learn to fly lessons and they say, you know, we live just a mile up Bush Lake Road here. And we've driven by this every day for our whole lives. Their kid is now eight years old. And we just never stopped to give it a try. And, and for the past two years, uh, Susie or Johnny says, hey, can I try that? And they just don't do it. Right? If Susie or Johnny says, can I join a soccer team? Every parent in America says, yep, let's go. We're right down to the park right now. And I think that the reason that there is that reluctance among uh, the grown-ups in the room is that they have this misperception, misconception that the sport is dangerous, that their kid is going to end up upside down and backwards in a hospital bed if they give it a try, and they're just simply not. Um, we haven't had an ambulance to the ski jump, and I can't even remember the last time that we did. And every night that I'm out there coaching the kids, I watch two or three or sometimes four or five ambulances turn down the road to go to Highland Hills and come back out with their sirens blaring. So yeah. there's this there's this misconception about how dangerous it is. And of course accidents happen and kids fall and they get hurt. Um, but it's not they're not it's 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 less frequent and less common than it is at the downhill ski area a mile down the road. So true. I, and even, you know, you think about the amount of research that's done on um all the, just the minor hits kids and adults take in recreational sports. And that actually can start adding up over time for brain injuries, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's absolutely safe. It for sure is something you probably think is just by watching it would be, um, way more dangerous than what it is, but absolutely agree with you hundred percent on that. It was yeah. once I went down, it was all in my head. And once I went down that baby jump, I was like, oh yeah, this is 
definitely um, was way more, it was just interesting to how much your brain can get in your, you know, can power your adrenaline and like, Oh, am I going to make it? And it was like the easiest thing. To exactly. And, and you're right. I mean, you, you acknowledged this earlier that, you know, as an adult, you're, you're just naturally a little more cautious or trepidatious. My kids are like, let's go. Like they're, they're, I want to do this right now. I don't need to practice. Just let me go off the jump. And it's, I mean, honestly, it's one of the reasons that uh, we have the safety record that we do is that, and I mentioned this earlier too, is just that we are, cautious right we don't we don't want kids getting hurt and not coming back we we want safety as i said is our first priority and we take care of the kids and we take care of the jumps they're always groomed exquisitely you're not going to catch an edge you're not going to land on ice none of that is going to happen and so so it's it's a way safer uh endeavor than people like to imagine it is so if you've got a kid who's got you know who, who who's got ants in their pants or who looks at, up at it and says hey what is that Ask them if they want to give it a try. Um, our number one goal as a club is always to generate more interest. We would we would love to have 200 members in the club, uh, kids that come out that often to jump. Uh, we're ready for that. Uh, and, and that's what the folks in the community can do to help. Awesome. Where can uh, they find more information about your club? I, I know you have a website, which I'm looking at right now. Yeah, it's mplsskijumping.com. And basically anything you need to know is on that website, including uh, sign up for a learn to fly lesson, which is the beginner lesson where you come out, where we put you into equipment. We uh, Usually it's myself or, or Coach Nick who takes you over to the little jump and gets you off of that jump. And we do this over the span of a couple of hours. Uh, you don't need to have skis. You don't need to have a suit. You don't need all you need is a helmet. And even if you don't have that, we can lend you a helmet, and and you can give it a try. Uh, but that, that's also where information is about uh, the coaches who who's involved there. You'll see our biographies on that. You'll see information when the time comes for our annual tournament this year. That annual tournament, incidentally, is usually in January. Uh, we have jumpers from all over the country come, sometimes international jumpers, and it's a great big party. We had about, uh, I, I can't remember if it was three or three and a half thousand people come out this year to wow. cheer on and watch, and it's just a great night. Uh, and so, so yeah, just, just, just check in and, and give it a look. Uh, that, would be, that would be what we'd ask for. I highly recommend it. If you have any ski experience whatsoever and you're looking for a fun, you know, new thing to try and do, grab some friends, grab your husband, your wife, um, buddies, and just go give it a try. It is such a hoot and you're going to have a great time. Once again, all your coaches there are so encouraging and friendly and great energy people. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I never thought I would let alone try a little bit of ski jumping, but definitely go grab my girlfriends to come back because that's how much fun we had. So, um, thank we're going to you. We're gonna hold you to that, Laura, that yes, you, have to, you, know you what? have to get your group out there. I will. I, um, I'm going to send out a note actually right after we, um, hang up here and get some girlfriends on the calendar to see if we can get this done before the snow melts this year. Cause, uh, I just think it's so much fun. I know they would love it. And they all have, a lot of them have kids that are in ski racing. Mm -hmm. So okay. I would love for them just to experience that, to see if their, their kids would be interested. Cause I, I, 
think they would. I think they would love it. But yeah. Well, thank you for joining the podcast today. I appreciate you um, sharing the story of the Minneapolis Ski Jumping Club, uh, a historic club right in Bloomington, Minnesota. It's been around since 1926. And um, again, as Peter had mentioned, if you have a desire to give ski jumping a try, or if you have kids that want to give it a try, you can go to mplsskijumping.com for more information. And thanks again for joining the podcast. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was my pleasure. It's great to talk to you again, Laura. Hopefully we see you out there soon. Oh, yes, you will for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks to our sponsors, Star Bank, Connecticut, Minnesota Historical Society, and Minnesota Propane Association. Last but not least, don't forget to introduce a kid to the great outdoors. Mm-hmm.